Hello everyone, it's January 24th, 2023. This week we got a few more details on that ABL anomaly that resulted in a loss of vehicle. They released a single page of information and we're going to do the analysis, like we did last week, but this time with a press release, which always helps. Anyway, let's get going and lift off. And we the Tower Room for episode 393 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Vulcan got delivered this week. Oh yeah! Oh, did it? We showed uh, we showed something—a stage or a tank or yeah. I think I think it's yeah, a core stage. It? I think it's a core. So Vulcan's being delivered, and it has because I think I don't remember the last time we talked about what the status was of those PE4s, but I guess they're ready to go, huh? I guess this is for testing, obviously. I don't think it's... I mean, testing in that they're going to do probably a wet dress rehearsal or a dry dress rehearsal, but yeah, I, I think it's been, it's been delivered for launch. A little delay, but <laughs> maybe more than a little. Has it, like, it, has it really been delayed? The impression and feeling I keep getting from people is that it's... Uh, the PE4s are the limiting factor for getting the Vulcan to launch uh, it's, it's kind of slowed things down a lot uh yeah okay i got i guess from if we go back before the the be4s were installed but even then i, I feel like i have to remember tori tweeting about like they had a, a good enough supply of be4s like they were the be4s were being produced at a good pace but maybe that was after they got delivery of these two was it just the production of them i mean i, I thought that there were some issues that they had to resolve with the one, force and that was what was holding it up one had to be returned i know after they fired it I, or I, I think it was after they fired it but something happened where they were one of them they thought was going to be it was almost flight ready but then they had to send it back to the plant for some manufacturing reason i remember that being in the news within the last I'm going to say six to 12 months. There was also a good like three year delay for the pandemic uh, just because the payload uh, Astrobotics Peregrine lander um, wasn't going to be there on time. Better late than never, which is something you <laughs> say a lot in space flight. So right, right. It says here in the news article I'm reading that um, they're targeting for pretty early this year. It doesn't say what, well, but I'm guessing that means the first quarter. So yeah, actually, I mean, this Q1. Is, okay. Yeah. So yeah, this is a wet dress rehearsal that they're about to do. And I guess you know, after a wet dress, then you know that the launch is coming up soon after that. The wet so. dress is happening with or without the payload. Do you know? It says that ULA will conduct a full launch wet dress rehearsal. So. That's all it says here. But full launch, I guess that means yes. No, but that's great. That's happening much sooner than I thought. Yeah, actually, I, I, I guess I lost track of it because I thought we were still <laughs> looking at, you know, like a year yeah. or something. And then mm -hmm. it seems to happen that way very often where you're thinking this is still who knows how long. And then yeah. all of a sudden it's finally here. Up to like November, it was supposed to fly by the end of last year. I think it was like October, November that they're like, eh, we're going to push this to the first quarter of 2023. But like... Yeah, like this, the sneak up snuck up because I didn't know that, that it was supposed to fly uh, last month. Pretty recently, it was supposed to fly last month. So it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a great looking rocket. I got to tell you, not, not that looks really matter, but... The ABL plus seven update. <laughs> uh, so seven days later, which at this point now it's more than seven days, I, th I think, right? But uh, this is the update from a couple days ago um, about what happened on that flight, that first flight of uh, their launch vehicle. So 
there was like, I guess this is a press release. I don't know. It was tweeted. That's what we have. Yeah. And it kind of goes through what happened, what they know, and then what they're speculating might be the cause of the launch failure. So I guess, well, we talked about it last week, but just to yeah. refresh people's memories, this happened pretty quickly after liftoff. So it was at T plus 10 seconds or 10.87 seconds. Yeah. Almost 11 seconds it, it made it. Yeah. Almost mm. 11 seconds. Didn't get very high. 761 feet. And then all nine engines lost thrust. Obviously, that's not supposed to happen, uh, yeah. but we didn't know anything. So I guess last week we were just talking about the fact that it did happen. Yeah. Last week, I don't I don't even know what time we said, but I think it was like in the 10 second ish rate. I don't know. Actually, I don't think they said anything about the time uh, as of last week. They just said, yeah, didn't didn't make it that high. And Hmm. I got to say, I didn't expect to see an anomaly report. I mean, it's a press release, right? Uh, It's not like an actual report, but it's uh, it's pretty darn thorough for a press release. And it it came out really quickly. Like you said, this was seven days after the launch attempt. Uh, so the 18th and it's now what the 22nd. So um, like we're coming to this late. And even if it had been released yesterday, that still would have felt pretty quick to me to have uh, this much information. And then before I let you go back to the press release, I just got to say ABL's press releases look so freaking good. Um, hmm. They've got a very distinct style that they've done. I'm pretty sure that they printed out their report and then scanned it in because this, the text is kind of mm-hmm. a little cockeyed. You can see that there's like waves in the paper, like it's not a perfectly flat scan on a, on a scan bed. It's just gorgeous. And I, I really love the way that this looks like it's, it's totally irrelevant to the vehicle itself but it makes me very happy. Um, and then the content of it is really well organized, really well like explained, like it takes you through step by step. It gives you information that makes you ask a question and then it answers the question for you. It's really good. Yeah, I mean, that's actually how I wish that all news reports about space exactly. were done. Exactly. Because yeah, I read it and I was like, oh, this is very easy to follow. I can just, you know, yeah, this is how it should be laid out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, as we're, uh, I guess at this point, we were at uh, loss of power. Basically, I mean, this much they know. So the vehicle lost power, right? So it wasn't just that the engines, apparently, not just that the engines lost power or that they shut down, but I guess the vehicle lost power. That was the, or those were the words that they used. And it says that all valves aboard the vehicle de-energized. I guess any valve actuations just suddenly froze up. Not only froze up, but they failed closed, which is good, uh, but... It's basically the only way that you could explain all nine engines shutting down at the same time, which is what we knew last week. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, loss of power. That makes sense. The vehicle ascended for another 2.63 seconds. So it hadn't gained much momentum at that point. But yeah, you know, another two and a half seconds. Then it fell. How do we know? uh, Because they they reported uh, the maximum acceleration, the exact altitude, and a bunch of very exact times. And Mm -hmm. I think we need to not gloss over how they know that the first stage lost all power, like nothing was left on the vehicle. But what's really cool is that stage two didn't lose power, continued to operate normally. And so stage two was reporting back all these metrics. So that kind of puts them in an interesting situation because they don't have any live data coming from uh, stage one at that point. Actually, they had enough live data that they, you know, no spoilers, but like they're potentially depending on what they can pull off of the vehicle. Cause we know it exploded, you know, whether there's an SD card 
<laughs> or the <laughs> space equivalent, uh, you know, some data storage somewhere that they can recover from the exploded rubble, they might just be working with the data that was transmitted. And the bulk of that data at some point comes from the second stage, which isn't presumably getting any uh, operational data from the first stage. So it's kind of an interesting situation um, that I feel like is fairly easy to gloss over, but it's it's really neat that they told us that stage two was operational and transmitting telemetry. Well, isn't it usually the case that the second stage will be taking some data from the first stage as well? I mean, I guess it depends on how the vehicles, you know, um, how it's integrated, but... Yeah, I, I believe that like SpaceX, I don't think that uh, the upper stage is really talking to the ground at all while the first stage is like, like at least not until closer to separation. Yeah. Well, that's a SpaceX Falcon 9. I mean, they have like boosters that have to come back and do all. I mean, yeah, yeah. I can see those operating very independently and doing things in a very different way. Sure. But what, what I mean is like you normally have to worry about like interference. If you have the first stage talking and the second stage talking to the ground at the same time, they're competing with each other. So I, th- I think normally what you see is uh, first stages talking and the second stage, maybe it's, you know, sending out a, a ping now and again or, or, you know, a carrier signal or something. But I, I don't think you usually are talking to both vehicles at once. I thought that very often the first stage perhaps didn't do much talking at all and that that was all routed mm-hmm. through the second stage. So basically anything you need to know about the first stage comes from the second stage and then yeah. the first stage detaches and then it continues to orbit and it continues to transmit because, yeah. I mean, the first stage is more disposable or is, you know, like right. going to be disposed of first. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like a design a design choice that's perfectly valid, but it's it's a very different type of design. And I feel like that type of design is an older way of thinking about things where you put all your control at the top of the vehicle and you see all the other um all the other stages as you know disposable so why would we put an antenna on them um sometimes why would we even put control hardware on them and and i feel like more and more today and this this is tough because we're talking about not just one company or one vehicle right like it's not like we can go look up one answer we'd have to look up a bunch of answers but my impression is that today when new vehicles are being designed more and more they're using like embedded systems where like the stage controls itself and is networked to the other stages to let them know what's happening. But this each stage tends to be a little more autonomous than they used to be. For sure. I mean, definitely the case with, you know, a Falcon 9 because, you know, like I was saying, that's <laughs> um, that's how that one would happen. They have a very operate. specific profile they got to do. Yeah. But okay. So a maximum... G load of 1.23. So that's not much, but you know, the vehicle hadn't been going for very long. So it hits an altitude of 761 feet. It coasts for a few seconds, then it comes straight back down. And I think last week, Ben, you'd speculated or you were looking at some of like the photos and said, I don't remember what you said, but I think you were saying that it came back pretty close, right? So Mm. I think maybe you were pretty much accurate there. Yeah. Satellite imagery showed that it fell straight down the pad. Um, What I was unsure about was somebody said that they were watching and they said that to their eye, it looked like it made it up to like 1,500 feet. Um, and judging by eye, the difference between 761 and 1,500 is not a huge discrepancy. That was a pretty good estimate. Like it, it could have been a lot worse. So they, they weren't like way, way, way off. Pretty cool. Yeah. So it hit 60 feet east of the launch pad. 
So just east of that pad, but still pretty close. And um, it scattered debris over a quarter of a mile, so um, or within like a quarter of a mile radius. Uh, so I guess they're going to have to pick all that up. And hopefully, yeah, like you said, <laughs> sift through it, see if they can find find any little uh, thumb drives or something. Hmm. But uh, yeah, and so since this flight failed so early, uh, it pretty much had all of its fuel. It was like 95% full of fuel. So it hadn't burned off much at that point. The explosion damaged quite a few things. I didn't look at myself at to you know, try and visually see what the extent of the damage was, but uh, there were some fuel and water tanks that were pretty badly banged up, uh, had communications equipment, and uh, the GSO launch mount and fluid container. So the launch mount, I, I couldn't even find what GSO stood for, but that is the name of their launch mount, right? So that's like their you know transportable pad. That's what they call it. The fluid container, I'm not sure what that means. Does like do you know what a fluid container is? What fluids being contained? Uh, I mean, I was going to be really snarky and say fluid. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, maybe just hydraulic fluid, perhaps. I don't know, since it does have to uh, raise it up and down. I mean, GSO, I would assume is ground support operations, but like. Okay, that, that makes sense. I, yeah, I was looking for something like that. Specific. I was like ground something, something. It's tough to Google because geostationary orbit. Uh huh. <clears throat> yep. So you really need GSO launch mount. <laughs> but on their website, they show, you know, they say GSO, blah, 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 but they don't say what that stands for. But ground support operation, that's probably it. Yeah. So, okay. So in the satellite imagery, there's a, a dark shadow, um, but it's not covering the launch pad. I didn't actually go look it up and see which one of these concrete slabs was was a launch pad. And yeah, for 60 feet, like the launch pad is, a, is you know, about 40 or 50 feet wide. So... 60 feet away is like basically the same thing, right? Um, and in the satellite imagery, you can see their fabric, uh, their fabric hanger and some ground support equipment. And where the shadow was uh, is a storage yard or maybe um, a parking lot. I think that was actually a shadow. I think it was a shadow from a cloud or something um, and was not a smoldering spot of uh, mm -hmm. X rocket because um, it, it was a good you know, 600 feet away from the launch pad. So, so yeah, kind of interesting. Like I, I had not taken a close enough look at this, at this launch site, but there, there are some questions answered right there. Mm. So I guess let's move on to their findings. So this is what they know so far. They actually detected, I guess, more than a couple pressure spikes and rises in temperature in the first stage aft cavity. So, and this is just like seconds after liftoff. So I guess pretty early on, they maybe, you know, did detect some anomalies. So it, like, if you look at the back of the rocket, right, I don't know exactly what I'm looking at. It's a whole lot of like plumbing for the engines, but I assume that it's right in that little space because there's nine engines and they're all in a circle, but there's nothing in the middle besides that hardware. So there's no center engine. So there is like this big cavity. And I guess that's where those pressure spikes and rises in temperature were detected. And when, and when they say pressure spikes, I'm wondering, do they mean in that void space there or in something inside that cavity? Do you know what I mean? Like inside of a piece of equipment or do they, you know, like monitor uh, the ambient pressure in that little void there because there's going to be, you know, I guess a little bit of a, a drop in pressure. I would interpret the stage one aft cavity, I think like you are, just the space between the engines. If, if they really form a ring, then an aft cavity sounds like a good way to describe the area between them. So yeah, the pressure went up there hmm. and temperature went up. So I guess something was presumably on fire combusting and causing that hmm. spike in pressure. Well, potentially related to that, I had a question. I wonder what you guys think. Um, in, in the image that they tweeted along with this press release, there's there's a really 
cool image of it just shortly after takeoff and you see the engines mm-hmm. firing away that space that that part of the the rocket right above the engines it looks like there's a lot of these striations going along it and i'm not convinced that that's like uh smoke or something in the foreground because it stops right where you know it reaches i guess a smoother part of the the tank or, or a smoother part of the rocket like i don't know what's going on there do you have any thoughts or ideas about why it looks like it's uh oh yeah no no that yeah the the soot with with water droplets running down through it. Yeah, it looks like tree bark. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. That's uh, different areas of, of water droplets being able to soak up more soot from the engines. I, I would be shocked if that was any sort of damage. Right. Yeah, so um, they also detected some evidence of smoke and fire near the quick disconnect uh, bay. So I think it was photographic evidence, right? Um, so they maybe just were able to actually see that right there during launch, that the quick disconnect, there was, uh, I guess, some excess amount of smoke and fire. Yeah, visual evidence is their wording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, and I think this is the, mo- the most interesting thing, they they had uh, sequential sensor failure. So that does indicate like a spreading fire to me because it's these things tripping off like one by one as, and they know where the sensors are. So yeah. I'm guessing they can even, you know, like draw a little path and go, oh, we can actually, you know, right. like see exactly how this happened. So that's some pretty good evidence right there. That's like the biggest thing to me. Yep. I totally agree. That's that's the the clincher right there is <laughs> you can <laughs> see the fire spreading. And finally, they said if the source of the fire cannot be determined, then they will at least identify the undesirable conditions that may have led to or contributed to or failed to mitigate the fire. And they'll be implementing that for flight two and beyond. So this doesn't happen again. So I guess worst case scenario, do what they can to prevent it from happening in the yep. first place. And if it does, you know, like I guess reinforce some stuff so that it maybe isn't quite as flammable. <laughs> I feel like if they have this same fire happen again, that that says a lot about their ability to engineer, right? Like an unexpected fire is one thing, uh, but having an unexpected fire and then not being able to control it in the future, eh, not great. So I would be surprised if this happened again. I would be shocked. Could happen. I'd be surprised. I mean, and it make it makes sense that that's the case, right? Like the entire point of a rocket is to have fire in one place and nowhere else. Um, And so, you you know, you can get some weird uh, air currents and things putting heat where, you know, where you wouldn't expect it to. But like, they've spent a lot of time thinking about how to keep the fire in the right place. So it's, this should be something that, that would be solvable just with this one data point. I mean, I wonder if it has something to do with the ground equipment. Like, I keep coming back to that in my brain. Like, I don't know how, but there was like a fire there. And something caught on fire, maybe I don't know, but I mean, it, it probably has more to do with the engines, or at least one way or the other, it probably does. But yeah, I mean, right, the engines are almost certainly the source of the heat <laughs> that started the mm-hmm, fire, yeah. mm-hmm. whether it went to the ground equipment and then came back in through the quick disconnect or something. But I, I don't know. I I would be really surprised if if GSE was to blame because, like, after the engines light up, the vehicle is disconnected from any GSE like physically disconnected pretty quickly, I would think it would be tough to have heat that was that had been handed off to something else to to do damage on the way back. I don't know. I mean maybe some kind of like a weird ground effect that, you know, blows it back kind up. Of I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Sure. That that could be that could be a possibility. They don't have, you know, just because of the nature of their whole operation, they don't have flame trenches, right? They not just really. Kinda... That's a that's a good point. Yeah, not they don't really have flame trenches. Yeah, so 
We'll have to wait for the next well-formatted press release. So let's do short and sweets. This week we got four of them, and Dennis, what's the first? NASA scales back ISS scientist program. While NASA had hoped for funding in fiscal year 2023 for its commercially enabled Rapid Space Science, or CIRRUS program, in which scientists would be sent to the ISS to conduct research, a budget shortfall has changed plans for the project. CIRRUS, which is estimated to increase the pace of ISS research 10 to 100-fold, depended on a budget increase for NASA's Biological and Physical Sciences Division, which did not happen after last month's omnibus spending bill was enacted. Accounting for inflation, the division received slightly less than what it did in 2022. Although the project is scaled back to just analysis and planning this year, two RFIs for CIRRUS remain open. And then next up, JUICE is ready for Jupiter. ESA's Jupiter ICMOONS Explorer is preparing for transport to French Guiana, where it will be launched aboard one of two remaining Ariane 5 rockets. Before transport, the spacecraft will need to be integrated with its massive 100-square-meter solar array. The launch, which is scheduled for April, will set JUICE on an eight-year journey to the moons of Jupiter by way of several gravity assists through the inner solar system. JUICE will enter orbit around Jupiter in 2031 and is expected to terminate its mission in 2035. Uh, next, Lucy's Loose Limb. As Lucy approaches the orbit of Mars, the cooling temperatures appear to be making it harder to reel in the slipped lanyard on its unlatched array. Attempts in November and December moved the array slightly, but not enough for mission managers to continue attempts, at least until the vehicle is warmer. The array is considered stable enough to not pose a major threat to the mission, and any future attempts to latch the array will safely wait until the next close approach to Earth in February of 2024. Lastly, or fourthly, ClearSpace raises funds for its first mission. Swiss startup ClearSpace has raised $29 million in a Series A funding round to support its first mission in 2026. In total, ClearSpace has raised $140 million from both private and government-backed investors. For its first mission, the Orbital Debris Removal Company will use a spacecraft with four articulated arms to deorbit part of a Vega rocket in low Earth orbit. This mission, called ClearSpace-1, will lift off aboard a Vega C rocket and is expected to launch in 2026. All right, let's move on to this week's spaceflight history. Uh, we have just two winners who both get bonus points, uh, Christian Lowe and Hydrak. And the clue was from Lunar Orion to Listening Orion. So that was a cryptic clue for me. <laughs> Figured it had something to do with things that were called Orion, of which there are, are a lot in space, in spaceflight. Mm-hmm. So um, which one was this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I originally was going to just make the clue from Orion to Orion, and I... I'm glad I didn't. I think this one turned out to be better. And so good job getting those. Because, yeah, I thought this was challenging, but I'm happy to see people arising to it. And so, yeah. So this uh, event was January 24th, 1985, and it was the launch of STS-51C. This was the first dedicated uh, Department of Defense uh, shuttle mission. So totally classified. So I'll be talking, I guess, more about context and broader stuff than the mission itself. And so... um you know, this is 85. This is before uh, Challenger. So we had that goofy naming designation where it really shouldn't be STS-51C. It should be STS-51C because each of those numbers mean something different. And so this was when they were thinking, you know, the military was going to be flying these shuttle missions all the time and potentially from uh, Vandenberg. And so uh, that was still on the table to actually do those. And uh, so that's uh, if you're, we talked about it before, but if you're new listener, uh, the the way the 51C designation works is the five is the last digit in the year, so 1985. Uh, the one means that it's a launch from 
the Cape, uh, where two would be a launch from Vandenberg. And then C just means that it was the third meeting that kind of 51 uh, designation. And so, uh, so yeah, so being a classified military launch, uh, it was one vet and four rookies, but all of them were uh, military guys. And so uh, a mix of Air Force and Navy uh, fellows. And so the, the veteran uh, who brings in one of the uh, the first half of the clue was uh, good old Ken Mattingly, right? Who, of course, Apollo astronaut, famously portrayed by uh, Gary Sinise. Uh, he didn't fly on Apollo 13, uh, so you got to miss uh, all of that excitement. But he did fly on Apollo 16. And when he flew, he was the uh, command module pilot, which meant right he stayed in orbit while John Young and Charlie Duke went and played around in the dirt. And uh, so as the pilot, you know, I think of him as, you know, the payload that he brought to the moon was the LEM. And the LEM on that mission was called Orion. So that's the first half of the clue, Lunar Orion. Um, And so uh, this STS-51C is bringing the other half of the clue, the listening Orion. But uh, I'll talk to that, talk about that after I introduce the rest of the crew. Um, uh, the pilot for the mission was Lauren Shriver. Uh, he flew a few more times after this. Uh, El Onizuka was a uh, mission specialist or MS-1. Uh, tragically, he he died uh, in, in the Challenger uh, disaster. Um, and then uh, Jim Bookley was the uh, MS-2, uh, the, the flight engineer. So he was kind of sitting over the... Uh, the pilot and commander's shoulders and kind of helping out with uh, ascent and uh, re-entry. And then uh, the fifth person uh, on this crew of five was uh, Gary Payton, who was a manned spaceflight engineer. And so this was an interesting designation that the U.S. Air Force came up with where they were training their own astronauts. He wasn't a NASA astronaut. He was a U.S. Air Force astronaut. And so, again, this is the idea where uh, they were thinking the military was going to be heavily involved in shuttle missions. They were going to be flying out of Vandenberg. So they wanted to have their own core of these uh, Air Force astronauts. And so Gary Payton was the first uh, uh, MSE, the first manned spaceflight engineer to fly. And I believe only uh, one of two, uh, only one other person flew under this designation. And then, of course, Challenger happened, and then they scrapped the idea of doing these missions out of Vandenberg, and all that kind of went out the window. So in any event, the launch itself took place. Everything was nominal and good. It was uh, Discovery was the orbiter. And it was a short mission. It was only three days, uh, one hour, 33 minutes and 23 seconds. So uh, very brief, even by DOD, kind of quick, <laughs> get up there, drop off the bird, and then come back the standards. What they delivered was a payload that went to geostationary orbit and uh, entered the, the slot at 70 degrees east, uh, which is over the Indian Ocean. And uh, that payload, uh, I guess, you know, the caveat, everything I'm saying after this is all speculation, but Mm. it seems to be the consensus of what uh, uh, was really going on there, uh, what they had actually sent up. Because there's no, there's no press uh, or there's no uh, mission debriefing or anything like they usually have those, those wonderful videos after uh, each mission uh, where they talk about what they had done. Um, There's not images of the payload bay or anything like that. But the speculation is that what they delivered, uh, which is designated USA-8, uh, was the first uh, Magnum or AKA Orion spy satellite. And so that's where the other half, it's a listening uh, Orion. So this is a giant spy satellite that's re- that was replacing an earlier uh, set of uh, rhyolite uh, satellites. And so go to geostationary 
orbit and just kind of, you know, park itself over one part of the world and then do its snooping there. And so uh, TRW had built these earlier ones and they also built these uh, Magnum Orions and uh, they reportedly weighed uh, somewhere in the 2.2 to 2.7 metric ton range. So that's uh, almost, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 pounds. So pretty darn big. And then this, uh, based on images that have been uh, uh, leaked of uh, kind of later versions of uh, the successor to the Magnum Orions, uh, they are speculated to have a 100 meter diameter reflector uh, dish. Uh, that's how big the uh, one of their antennas were. Uh, they, they had a number of different ones that were both fixed and steerable, but um, 100 meters, that's 330 feet. It's you know, basically an American football field uh, in, uh, in diameter. Um, that's pretty much what uh, the Green Bank Telescope, if you're familiar with how gigantic that one is, uh, imagine the Green Bank Observatory, uh, that telescope, in orbit. Um, it's absolutely incredible. And, and to think about how you were able to get that folded and into a shuttle payload bay is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Uh, the, the, the one thing that we do know about it is that it had a, uh, an inertial upper stage, uh, an IUS. And so that's, that was one of the kind of heftier, I think a two-stage solid uh, rocket uh, motor that would basically, after the shuttle would take you to Leo, then that would take your your hefty boy to Geo or beyond. Now, uh, I, I wanted to quiz you guys, uh, like I did when we had the uh, when I wanted to see if you knew what the latest X number was. So this was only the eighth USA payload, which is the designation that the uh, U.S. Air Force gives to their payloads. What USA are we up to now? You guys want to take a mm. guess? <laughs> I'm gonna say. Hmm. 200 <laughs> i'll make it around number yeah, I have no idea i'll go around with there uh, maybe 201 is what i'll say 201 we are at as of the falcon heavy launch that just happened mm -hmm. we are at usa 342 oh man so You're closest without going over ballparked it you know <laughs> yeah i mean Not within an order, an order of magnitude Pretty yeah good. for sure <laughs> good job good job team Okay. So yeah, so um I, I thought that was fun. So anyway, yeah, so uh so that's you know, it's it's presumably up there, but you know, it just operated for however many decades uh doing its 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 thing. And um, you know, it, it again, all these are reported. Uh, you know, this is a, you know, a lot of speculation for this type of classified stuff, but it was reported to intercept uh, missile telemetry as well as military and diplomatic communications, particularly focusing on uh the Soviet Union and China. Um, uh, and with that location, you can see at 70 degrees east, they would be within their, you know, the footprint of this uh, uh, absolute behemoth of a satellite. And um, as far as we can tell, there was only one other uh, Magnum Orion that was launched, uh, and that was on STS-33. Uh, so another mission uh, that was very classified and secret. Now, that's kind of it that I can tell you about the mission itself. A little bit of what we do know uh, comes from documentation about the successor to the uh, Magnum slash Orions. And in 1995, uh, we launched the first uh, advanced Orion, uh, which was also known as Mentor. And um, these we know much more about because they were part of Snowden's uh, leak uh, when he was uh, giving all those documents to uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald and those other guys. 
So yeah, so these uh, these, these advanced Orions, and I see uh, Mike uh, had put an image in the chat in our Discord chat from one of these presentations uh, that was uh, revealed by uh, Snowden as part of his leaks. And they're you know they're part of the same uh, seventy six hundred series or mission seventy six hundred it's called, where they're basically doing this kind of uh, eavesdropping. You know, you can actually look at these documents themselves. I got to admit, I never really did. I just kind of read about the press reporting on, you know, what our kind of spy efforts were that uh, was being revealed in these leaks. But um, I did learn one uh, uh, new thing, which is, right, there's different types of uh, uh, intelligence terms, right? They'll call, talk about SIGINT, which is signals intelligence, or IMINT, which is imagery intelligence. And I had never heard of uh, FISINT or F-I-S-I-N-T. And that's foreign instrumentation signature intelligence. And evidently that's uh, snooping on others, uh, but like picking up telemetry uh, more so than picking up, uh, you know, actual phone calls between, say, two people, you know, in some other country or in our own, frankly, uh, depending on, you know, <laughs> what they've been doing. So anyway, uh, yeah, so that's uh, kind of uh, an interesting intersection of a 1980s shuttle mission that was classified and then those leaks that came from Snowden in 2013. And so uh, in any event, uh, if nothing else, I really strongly recommend you go and check out the images of these. Uh, it's pretty incredible. There's a uh, an artist's uh, rendition uh, speculating on what they look like uh, that was done in the 90s. And then there's the uh, the one that was part of the uh, the Snowden documents and data. So in any event, that is your secret this week in SF in space this week in spaceflight history. I think I think it's really cool that we finally got around to talking about the Snowden links on this show. Like <laughs> like I didn't I didn't realize that like this kind of information was contained in there. I thought it was just like here are the intentions, not here are the way here are the implementations. Mm. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I, mean, uh, I, I don't know much about it, but there's a lot of information in those leaks. I do know that. It's a yeah, I haven't. Ton, right? I haven't even tried to think about reading them. Yeah, here, here's 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 the only direct one that I uh, actually I should probably put this in there too. I guess since I was reading it. Yeah, I, I didn't know if I wanted to start talking about like talent keyhole and all this other like that stuff's interesting. But like mm -hmm. that's what all those S slash TKs are at the beginning. So apparently every line will be or every paragraph will be classified mm -hmm. to a different degree. And evidently all these are S and TK. And then talent keyhole refers to uh, imagery. Uh, and signals intelligence specifically. So S is secret. SI is oh uh, special information. I think. Spe oh, okay, sure. And then what's TK? Is that is that it's top? talent keyhole, which is an internal designation, oh. I guess. Oh. For, I had to Google what talent keyhole. So that just refers to imagery, like, and there's it, it's just a secret, not secret, I guess, but uh. It's just one of those little funny names that, that they give something that they're that's classified. Exactly. Is that why it's called that? Yeah. And, and that SCI I brought up before, uh, on the Wikipedia page, if you scroll down, there's 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 a, they, uh, control systems, they call it. And so there's Stellar Wind, NSEAL, Talent Keyhole, Klondike. Oh, I remember Byman when I was talking about the mole, the manned orbiting lab. I, I started reading about Byman. Uh, Talent Keyhole covers space-based uh Imint, imagery intelligence, SIGINT, signals intelligence, and MASINT, uh, measurement and signature intelligence. So it's it covers the the intelligence, the processing analysis techniques, the design, the research and operation of the platforms that collect that intelligence. So yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, and then one other thing is the, um, the like concept art of uh, Orion Magnum is, was done by uh, Charles Vick in the 1990s. Um, and he was an aerospace researcher, um, but also an aerospace analyst. And mm. he uh, consult, did a lot of consulting on Russian and Chinese uh, space systems and like ballistic missile systems. So um, kind of somebody who would, would know what he's talking about without actually being part of the, of the military or the federal government and not be able to do so. <laughs> kind of cool. Mm, for sure. And when you compare that to the one that Mike had put in there, it's kind of like, yeah, I see it. You know, <laughs> I yeah, mean, there's only off. so many dishes, but yeah, like it has that very umbrella kind of shape. Like you could have made a dish that was not an umbrella, you know? Yeah. And, and to be <laughs> so. fair, the, the leaked image from the Snowden files was of USA 202, which was probably an Orion Rio rather than Orion Magnum. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a later generation, but not that much later. Pretty cool. Thank you. That that was really fun. I I didn't think you were going to be able to extract that much interesting things to say about a classified payload. So I guess we can move to next week's uh, clue, which will be from the 31st of January to the 6th of February. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week in 1971. I reread the specs. Let's give it another shot. That's funny. Don't know what it's in reference to, but uh, if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. We just have three launches. Uh, and uh, Ben, you got the first one. Yeah. We'll, we'll maybe call it two and a half. Yeah, two and a half, maybe. So first up, this one's uh, pretty solid as far as I can tell. This is an H-2A in the 202 configuration flying IGS Radar 7. Uh, so this is a radar reconnaissance satellite uh, from Japan. So uh, we talked about this last week. So this one is going to be flying on Wednesday, January 25th, uh, between 0100 hours UTC and 0300 hours UTC. And then next up, the first of a pair of Starlinks. And so this will be a Falcon 9 taking Starlink Group 5-2 to Leo on Thursday, January 26th, with a window from 0902 UTC to 1211 UTC. And this one will be launching out of Slick 40 at the Cape. And then after that, on the 31st, uh, we have a Falcon 9, and that's with Starlink Group 5-3. So that's just another batch of Starlinks that's uh, launching from the Cape uh, from uh, Launch Complex 39A. And the launch time uh, is 0827 UTC. Uh, looks like an instantaneous launch window for that. Check it out if you want. Um, and as we always say, you can just wait a couple of days for the next one. <laughs> Okie doke. Those are your upcoming space flight events. All right, which means it's time to do up with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jakey and Tim Dot for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Valentin, Frank, Chris, A.K. Steigarfield, and Calvin Stew for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.